I'd gone over my teaching. I was sort of relaxing. Um, I was reading a magazine, I think, because I knew I had I had hours to go before service. I was going to go over my teaching a couple more times, and uh, the phone rang, and uh, it was my son-in-law, whom I love, who had just been in a wreck on I-70, and uh, so our our morning Juan's morning and mine changed suddenly, and uh, Juan's vehicles totaled, and thankfully he and the uh, folks in the car that were perpendicular to the direction of traffic in I-70. Apparently, a, a gal and her two small children, uh, who probably wouldn't be alive if one had hit them broadside the way they were, it just clipped the end of them. Everybody was safe and we're good to go. But one's here instead of on his way to New Haven, Connecticut this morning. So that's not a bad thing. And we drove away and said, everybody's safe. This is pretty good. Anyway, in the midst of all that, uh, I'm really thankful one's safe and... Here, And this is also just to tell you that I left my teaching notes at home. And I, I live off my teaching notes. So my memory's pretty good, but this will be a little rough this morning, so uh, bear with me as we uh, gather the fragments and, and see what we can pull out. Let me pray just before we do. Lord, I do thank you that, as Jerry and I were just talking about minutes ago, you are in control of the details of life. Lord, where we are, where we're not, where we're going to, where we're not going. And thanks, Lord, that when surprises come up for us, they're not for you, that all things really are serving your purposes. And we are right where we long to be, Lord, right in the middle of your will, uh, thankful and praising you. Thanks that in the wreck one was in, everybody's safe. And going on about life could have been far different. And Lord, thanks that your word is still good, whether I remember it all of it or not this morning. And just ask for your help. Uh, help us to get what you want from this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we will be in Genesis 14, verses 1 through 16 this morning. I'm going to read this. This is sort of a, it's an odd passage, so so uh, bear with me. It's uh, odd in a sense, both because of the topic and then because of all the hard-to-pronounce names. So we'll read through the text. We'll revisit the storyline sort of just so we make sure we know what we're talking about. Then we'll go into some points and application. Genesis 14, 1 through 16. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Goyim means nations. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shem Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, or we would call it the Dead Sea today. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who lived in Hatzazon Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar came out 
And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Keterlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goy. King of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. Those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. For the Jews, Dan would be up in the north of Israel. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So to revisit this briefly, the four kings, Keterlaomer and Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, and Tidal, we think, by the way, if you read a passage like this and you say, who are these guys and where are these places, you know, Commentators don't know where half of these places are today. No idea. But generally, it seems to mean this. Kings from the area of Babylon have come over along the Fertile Crescent into the area of the Dead Sea. So the area along the east side of the Jordan River, down along the Dead Sea and south of that. So those kings, the kings of the cities of the plain, the five cities in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd been paying tribute to the Babylonian kings. They quit. The kings wait a little while, and then they come with their armies to go get their tribute with interest. So they've come down the Fertile Crescent. They've, they've conquered all these peoples, including Sodom and Gomorrah. They've taken all their goods, and they've headed back north through Dan. They're going to go back home with all their booty. Abram hears that Lot's been taken. And if you remember the last time we read about Lot, he'd chosen to leave Uncle Abram and head east down towards the Jordan River Valley, which looked green, looked like a good choice at the time. We've talked about this. Here we learn he's actually ended up in the city of Sodom, and so he's part of the group that's kidnapped and taken up north. So Abram grabs all the people of his household. This is 318 people. You know when you talk about these two groups were so big they couldn't live together? 318 adult men that could go out to war. This was a big group. But small compared to going to fight, foreign army, certainly. He's also got a few of his friends, the Amorite brothers and maybe some of their servants, but it's not a very big group. They head north. They're going to cut them off. And then shrewdly at night, they divide their forces and they conquer and they redeem everybody and they bring them back. So that's the story. I want to mention a couple things about Abram uh, out of this. The first one is this. Abram is seen a little bit as sort of a foretaste of God fulfilling the promises he'd made to Abram back in Genesis 12. And if you remember there, God said to Abram, I'll make you great, I'll make you a nation, and you'll be a blessing to those around you. So when you read in this story, Abram, who's not a king, Abram defeats the four kings and their armies who had defeated five kings and their armies. Abram's not a king, but he's the greatest of all those involved in this story. 
So Abram's great. He's also blessing the Amorites that went with him. And we'll read this later as the story advances. We're not going this far this morning. Um, Abram refuses to take any of the spoils of war that were rightfully his for, for going and getting all of the goods and the people. But the Amorite brothers, they get some of the spoils of war. So those in alliance with Abram are blessed because they were with Abram and went and helped Abram in this rescue mission. And then also you've got this scene where foreign kings have come in and have invaded the land of promise and Abram's successful in kicking them out. So on one level in the story, you've got this foretaste maybe or the sense in which we see those promises God made to Abram in a little way at least, you see some fulfillment or some recognition of those here in this story. This is another thing that doesn't come up when you read the commentaries, but is in my mind significant, especially when we've talked about Abram being meek before. Imagine that you're Abram, just for a minute. And you know the situation that you've just defeated the kings of the east. So the kings of the east of all of Babylon, their armies you've just defeated. And they just defeated the kings and the armies of all the places east along the Jordan River Valley and the Dead Sea. So if you had any aspirations at all, what would you be doing? All of Babylon lays open to you. And all of the place along the east side of the Jordan River, if you wanted to be a king or set up your own kingdom, this would be the time to do it, wouldn't it? Because they're all open. Their armies are subjugated to you. You've won. And it's all laid open to you. So if your aspirations are to go in and seize plunder or set up your own kingdom, this would be the time to do it. And yet just before this, God had told Abram, and if you remember, he'd been down to Egypt before, and God hadn't told him to go there. And so when he comes back and, and Lot and he talk about where are we going to go and how are we going to live together or apart, and Lot separates. And do you remember what God tells Abram? He says, walk through the land I've promised you. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land I've promised you. So Abram, on one hand, he has this huge opportunity laying at his feet. All of Babylon's open to him. All of the area east is open to him. If he wants it, it's his for the taking because he and his army have just won. And he walks away and he goes home. And it's because he knew God hadn't called him to do that. God had not called him to set up his kingdom at that time or that way. And even though all the, the wealth of the east, if you will, lay before him, he had no desire for it, no aspirations. So he goes home. He goes back to where he was. Because God's call in his life was, you walk here through the length and the breadth of this land that I've promised you. This was a great reminder to me, and this has sort of come up before in these stories. The fact that you're presented with an opportunity that looks golden does not mean it's from God. The fact that something falls at your feet and you know or you say to yourself, you know, if I wanted to, I could take that kingdom or take that new job or seize that loot or whatever. The fact that it falls at your feet and it looks golden does not mean God wants you to take it. may not mean that at all. It may be just a temptation to get you out of the place and the people and the geography God wants for you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't bring some of those opportunities up, but the fact that they're there may not mean they're an opportunity. They may mean simply it's a temptation. So, you know, when you go to Jesus uh, being tempted by Satan, 
Satan says, hey, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And besides being the wrong way, Jesus says no. He knows this isn't the time that he's going to get his kingdom. So he says no. So the fact that in your life, if you see what looks like a golden opportunity, it may be temptation, it may not be the opportunity God actually has for you. So I'm very encouraged by Abram's willingness to turn around and go back the other way. Be careful when opportunities present themselves. Pray about it. Does God want you taking those up or does he want you back walking the length and the breadth of the place he's already got you? The place I want to hang our hat this morning, though, is not on Abram. You know, when you read this story, it's odd. If you've been reading along through Genesis and then you hit chapter 14, all of a sudden it shifts gears. It's like, what is going on? What do we care about these kings from the east? And how do they connect to Abram? Do you know what I mean? It's this pastoral scene. It's Abe and Lot. It's, it's shepherds and it's goats, you know. And, and all of a sudden you've got international affairs and the invasion of kings. And you're like, Lord, why does this impact Abram at all? Until you get to verse 12. This whole story hinges on Lot, not on Abram. At verse 12, we find out why this story's here. Because Lot's been taken with those from Sodom. That's why there's a story. So imagine this. If you're Abram and you hear that those wicked kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities on the plain, that they've been run over by the kings from the east, how big a priority for you is that? You maybe shrug your shoulders and say, well, they, it, you know, maybe they got what was coming to them. We assume Abram knew they were wicked cities. In fact, I think he does from Genesis 18. So Abram would have no concern. So until you get to verse 12, there's no reason for this story to be here. Lot is the reason this story is here. And the whole story hinges on Lot. And I love this. He's only mentioned two times in the passage, but that's the reason this story is here. Mr. Lot is the reason this is included at all. The title of this uh, teaching this morning is called uh, Righteous Rescue, and it's because uh, Lot is rescued by Abraham, Abram's God's servant in this, and Lot, the righteous, is rescued. Now, we've talked about Lot, we've looked at his choice, we've seen the ways he's blown it, we've talked about the ways in the future and the stories coming up in the chapters just a few pages down the road here, what's going to happen to Lot. He chooses badly, he lives badly, he ends badly. Um, He's got to be rescued here from Sodom, right? And then he's got to be rescued from Sodom again later, right? In Genesis 19. What's going on? How in the world could this be a righteous rescue? By what rationale could we call Lot righteous? Um, And God does call him righteous. You can turn to 2 Peter if you want. Uh, Lot comes up again at the end of the Bible in 2 Peter 2. And in this passage in Peter, uh, Peter and Jude are very similar epistles. They're both about judgment and end times. And uh, Peter's making a point in the second chapter there, a point both about God's ability to rescue the righteous and judge the unrighteous. So in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9, Peter says this, and I'm just going to skip through this. God didn't spare angels when they sinned. This would be in the Genesis 6 
a category before the flood. Um, He didn't spare, verse 5, the ancient world. This is the flood, but he preserved Noah. Didn't spare the ancient world, but Noah was preserved. Uh, He condemned to judgment the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but, verse 7, he rescued, and these are God's words, not mine, righteous lot. And then look what it says in verse 8, that righteous man and his righteous soul were tormented. In Second Peter, God calls Lot righteous three times. Now, when you read his stories in Genesis, there's no way you'd say Lot the righteous. So I'm thinking, what gives and what is God's perspective on Lot and Lot's righteousness and why is this a righteous rescue in this story in Genesis 14? You've got to ask yourself, on what basis can Lot be called righteous by God and this still be true? And I think it gets down to this, and this is exciting to me. I hope it is to you too. Lot's righteousness, I think, didn't have anything to do with Lot. It didn't have anything to do with Lot. God could call Lot righteous because even though it's not included in the text of Scripture, I assume that Lot had believed in God the same way Abram did. And that God could call Lot righteous because of what we call in the New Testament imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Um, When we stand before God, and if think about this for just a second, if you were a Jew living in the Old Testament and you had sinned, you would go to the temple or the tabernacle and you'd take an animal with you and that animal would be slain in your behalf and God would declare you righteous. So you could see on one hand, the righteousness couldn't be something in you because you didn't do anything righteous. You brought your sin to the temple and a sacrifice was slain. And then God said, you're in right standing. So the righteous standing you had there after the sacrifice was slain wasn't from within you. It was from outside of you. Your right standing before God was dependent on the sacrifice that was made in your behalf. So your right standing with God, your justification with God, had nothing to do with what was inside you. You brought your sin and your deficiency. The righteousness had come from outside you. And that's the righteousness you and I enjoy as Christians today. People get confused about this sometimes. We talk about things like eternal security or who's justified, who's saved, who's not saved. None of us has a chance of heaven if right standing with God is dependent on what we have within ourselves or what we bring to the plate. None of us has a chance. There's not one righteous, no, not one, Romans 3 says, quoting Psalms. Ecclesiastes says, there's not one man that sins. So for all of us as humanity, we we come to God and we bring sin and deficiency. That's what we bring. So if God calls us righteous, it can't be based on ourselves. It can't be based on something inside of us. And this is the beauty of imputed righteousness. If we don't create it, if we don't work it up, if it doesn't originate in us, if it's something that, as it were, is laid upon us from outside, then what can we do to lose it? If you don't produce it, you don't buy it, you don't create it, what can you do to lose it? You can't. 
one of the reasons we're eternally secure as Christians, as those who placed our faith in Jesus Christ, is because we have an imputed righteousness that isn't based on us, it's based on Christ. Now, if you go into the Old Testament, God was sort of charging sin on a credit card. Romans talks about this, that before the law came, sin was there, But God didn't count it as sinful before the law. But there was still sin there. There was still an issue to be resolved. So in the Old Testament, they're sacrificing all those animals. But Hebrews says, you know, those animals, they can never save you. They're pointing to something else. So in the Old Testament, when those guys brought an animal, it's slain, the blood is poured out, they're declared in right standing by God. God was, as it were, using a credit card to call them righteous because payment for their sins had not really been made. Lot's righteousness, just like Abram's, just like everybody in the Old Testament, was dependent on Christ coming in the fullness of time, Galatians says, and dying on the cross as that ultimate sacrifice for sin, rising from the dead. So when God called Lot righteous, it was, in fact, based on Christ's death and resurrection, paid on a credit card, so to speak. Payment was made on the cross in Christ's death, burial and resurrection payments made. And now afterwards, we look back to that event as the source for our righteousness. And if we'd lived in the Old Testament, we would look forward to that, to God's ultimate provision for our right standing with Him. If you don't provide your righteousness, if God provides it for you, it's independent of you. You can't mess it up. And as messed up as Lot's life was, and it was. God calls Lot three times in Second Peter righteous. I'm loving this. See, this gets me away from thinking there's something that I can blow. And I'll have sinned too far. And just think of this. Go back to Lot for a second. Lot's living in Sodom. Lot is living in the city that in the Bible is the epitome of wickedness and evil. He's there in the midst How much further astray from God can you get? And God still says he's righteous. When I say this, I don't at all mean to imply that when we travel with Lot to the Sodoms of this world, that we don't lose something because we do. And we lose big time. And we've talked about this before when we looked at Lot's choice and what came of it. Lot lost all his wealth. He lost his wife. He lost the nobility, if you will, he'd enjoyed with Abram and the ability to participate in what God was doing on the earth when he went to Sodom. He lost all that. He lost huge. Again, I think if you could have gone to Lot at the end and said, Lot, would you make a choice differently? I think he never would have left Abram's side. But he makes lousy choices for a long time. He goes to Sodom. When he's rescued at this point, wouldn't you think he'd know, hey, time to head back with Uncle Abram, but he doesn't. He stays in the most wicked place on earth until God's got to save him again in Genesis 19, which we'll see in coming weeks. But if we're saying Lot has any righteousness on his own, we can't find it. And yet God says Lot was righteous three times in Second Peter. 1 Corinthians 1.30 talks about this. And Paul says there that Christ has been made to us Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification from God. That Christ has been made to us wisdom. 
verses 30 and 31 in 1 Corinthians 1 says, It's by His doing you're in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. We don't have it. Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, similar thought from Paul. It says, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The righteousness you and I enjoy is not from within us. And you can't ruin it. And you can't spoil it. It's perfect in Christ because it's His. So God looks back two millennia in Peter's day and He looks at Lot and his messed up life and He says Lot was righteous. And He sends Abram, His servant, on this righteous rescue so that Lot is not caught up in the judgment of God on the wicked, on those who don't know God. And think of this too for just a second. If you were a traveler through Sodom and you travel through and you see Lot there just like everybody else, and let's say you don't have a conversation with him or um, you don't know him any other than just to see him, you'd assume Lot is just like everybody else in Sodom. You wouldn't be able to distinguish that Lot is righteous and the others are not because he's in the unrighteous city. And you know, oftentimes Christians don't live like Abram. We live like Lot. And we go to Sodom. And we're making a trade and and we think maybe at least for a while it's okay. And people get so hung up, they see someone that they said was a Christian in Sodom. And they say they must not be a Christian. I don't know. If you'd have looked at Lot, you'd have said, surely he's not one of God's own because of where he was. But he was God's. He never quit being God's. And the fact that someone is living in Sodom or with the prodigal son is in the pig pen or wherever, whatever imagery comes to your mind, that does not mean that they're not a Christian. We want to solve in our mind they're saved or they're not saved. They were a Christian or they never were a Christian. It's Frankly, it's not that simple. And I don't even think God calls us to figure it out. He just says, if someone's, uh, someone claims to be a Christian, he says, if your brother sins, go and confront him. You know, if he listens to you, win him back. Doesn't take two witnesses. If he doesn't, take the church. But the thought is always that someone who's named Christ's name, you're calling them back to fellowship with God and with you, with the church. If they don't, then he says, okay, uh, treat them as an unbeliever. It doesn't say they are. The text never says they are. We don't know. It's just that you're not free to fellowship with them the way you would if they were walking with God, if they were back with Abram, as it were, if they left Sodom and came out. Likewise, there are people that you'll see and their lives look exemplary. And you'll say, they must be a Christian. And... They may be the furthest thing from a Christian. The fact that they live an exemplary life, that they look good on the outside, doesn't say anything about whether or not they're clothed with Christ's righteousness. And this is the beauty. This always gets back to Christ. Do you know Christ or not? Do you have faith in God or not? That's really what it gets down to. So, so many Christians get hung up on this. And if I get it, 
that my righteousness is given, is imputed by Christ, that it's his. I can't blow it. That frees me to get on with living. And guys, it in no way degrades the, the reality of the cost to Jesus when Christians walk away and don't honor him in the way they live. See, we want to say they're getting away with something. They're not. Lot doesn't get away with anything. He avoids final judgment because he has Christ's righteousness. We avoid final judgment because we have Christ's righteousness. But it doesn't mean those decisions we make in life don't cost us. They cost us dearly. I was talking with Bob just before the service. This has this has nothing to do with where we were going this morning. But in heaven and in hell, there are degrees of reward and there are degrees of punishment. So that if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven because you have Christ's righteousness. That's the only place you can go. You're his. You can't go anyplace else. Even if you said you wanted to, you're his. You're going to heaven. The degree by which, though, Christ is free to reward you in heaven is dependent on the choices you make in this life. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says that our life, at one point, we're going to stand as individuals before Christ and he's going to try our lives. He's going to put the flame, the torch to our life. And the things that we did in this life for him, they're like things that can't burn up, gold, silver, and precious jewels. The stuff that we did in this life that wasn't for Christ didn't measure up to his standard. It gets burned up. It's ashes left behind. Well, if we're with Lot and we give our whole life to live in Sodom, when we stand before Christ, the fruit, if you will, of our life, it's going to be ashes on the floor at our feet. And Jesus isn't going to be able to reward us the way he would like to. But we'll be in heaven because we have his righteousness. We just won't receive the kind of reward God would like to give us. Likewise, those in hell. Um, there's degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus says, you know, some will receive fewer stripes, some will receive more stripes. And the line between heaven and hell is Christ. So those without Christ, if they lived exemplary lives, they still endure eternity apart from Christ, not in heaven, in what Scripture calls the lake of fire. They're still there. But when we think of the Mao's and the Stalins and the Hitlers, they're there too. They just have far more severe punishment than those who looked like they lived an exemplary life but didn't have Christ's righteousness. So in a sense, we say it's not fair. It wasn't fair to Jesus, and that's okay. It's better than fair. We're thrilled. We know Christ, we're going to heaven. But at another level, life is fair. Because if we choose to live with Lot in Sodom, there comes a day when we give account for that. And it ends up being ashes. We don't want that. We don't want to live in Sodom. We want to make our best choices with Abram. You're going to find sometimes in life you might be Lot. You might be you might have made those lousy decisions. You might find yourself in Sodom. You know, I just say, get out as soon as you can. Don't, we've talked about this a couple times in these stories of Abram, though. Don't get hung up on thinking, I've sinned too far. I've sinned too long. God couldn't take me back. Because your standing with him is perfect. It's settled from day one because it's Christ's righteousness. You can't lose it. It's not from you. You didn't produce it. You can't lose it. 
And you can trust the, the worst of us at our worst can know that when we die, we're going to heaven, not because we've lived well, not because we've chosen well, but because Christ is our righteousness. Sometimes, too, though, you may find yourself playing the role of Abram, where God says to you, you need to go make a righteous rescue. You need to go bring Lot back out of Sodom. And that means being willing to go to your friends, your relatives, whoever it is, and saying, hey, let's come back. Let's come back to the other side of Jordan. Let's make some decisions that we won't regret in the future. Sometimes you'll find yourselves as Lot. Sometimes you'll find yourself as Abram. I want to close with a passage that comes out of Jude. It's a doxology, and you've probably heard it read after some of our services before. But it's a great statement about this about our imputed righteousness and judgment as well and the fact that we end up at times in places we shouldn't be and yet that our ultimate standing before God is dependent on Him and not on ourselves. Jude says this, Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. That's Lot. And that's Abram rescuing Lot. But he closes with this. Now to him, this is God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever, Amen. He is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. When you think of Lot in the future, I would just encourage you to think of him as Lot the righteous. Lot the one that God called righteous, not because of the lousy decisions he made in his life, but because apparently like Uncle Abram, he had exercised faith in God and God's promises. And that if God calls Lot righteous, I'm confident that we're okay too. If Lot had made all those lousy decisions called by God at the end of his life, 2,000 years later, that was enough time for God to assess the situation, I think. Still calls him righteous three times. You know, there's hope for us. There's hope for us. Lord thinks that we bring nothing to the plate of salvation except our need, our sin, our fallenness. Lord, help us get over any of these thoughts that we can either save ourselves or keep ourselves saved. Thanks that the righteousness we enjoy in your presence is by your doing, as Paul said, that it's by your doing that we're in Christ, that he is our righteousness, that Jude says, Lord, that you're able to make us stand blameless in your presence with great joy. And Father, in the life that we have on this earth now, help us to be making those decisions that we are glad of when we see you face to face. Help us to take wisdom from Lot's life. Help us to know enough, Lord, to learn from the mistakes of others, to say no to the temptations that the Sodoms bring. Help us to travel with Abram faithfully in the place you've appointed for us. Help us to discharge all the responsibilities you give us, Lord, because it's a great thing to do. 
And Lord, thank you that uh, Jude points out we will, our future is with you, blameless with great joy. Help us to live in anticipation of that great and happy day. In Jesus' name, amen.